family and welcome. Today we're going to share about the heresies that occurred while Jesus still walked the earth. Right from the beginning, even before Christ died for us and rose from the dead, Jesus and his church came under attack. Jesus went about forgiving men's sins. The Pharisees and the Sadducees could not accept this. They argued, how can he forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. They could not allow this to continue. But Jesus knew that only when man is free from sin and its cancer, then and only then can he be free from physical pain. Jesus, with his blinding mirror of love, brought light into the darkness of sin that was eating away at the society of his time, and Lucifer had to put out that light. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen said, sin is always done in the dark. Our Heavenly Father, seeing the suffering and pain of His children, sent His only Son, Jesus, to earth to be sacrificed for the redemption of men's sins. God had asked Abraham to sacrifice His Son out of love and obedience to Him. But our God in His compassion did not require of Abraham that which He, out of supreme love for us, would later do. See His most precious, His only begotten Son take the place of the spotless Lamb and be sacrificed for the salvation of the world. Was Lucifer angry? Die for men's sins that they may be saved from eternal damnation? He was livid. Lucifer knew the value of Jesus dying for his enemies as well as his friends. This God-man Jesus was not in keeping with the lie Lucifer was selling, that of the God of anger, punishment, fire and brimstone, the God who didn't care, who left us alone except to catch us in sin so he could punish us. And so Lucifer went after the weak link in the chain of apostles that Jesus had chosen to follow him. Lucifer pl plied and manipulated Judas with social justice. Feed the poor stomach. Do not be worried about their souls. Has anyone ever seen a soul? But you can see a man's swelling stomach. Does that sound familiar? As Judas was stealing from Jesus and the apostles, he was crying out for social justice. Judas was a thief. Recall when he rebuked the woman who was, for, was anointing Jesus? Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the village of Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Mary brought a pound of costly perfume made from genuine aromatic nod with which she anointed Jesus' feet. Then she dried his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the ointment's fragrance. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to hand him over, protested, why was not this perfume sold? It could have brought 300 silver pieces and the money given to the poor. He did not say this out of concern for the poor. He was a thief. He held the purse and used to help himself to what was deposited there. But to this, Jesus replied, leave her alone. Let her keep it against the day they prepare me for burial. Judas, when Jesus said these words, against the day they prepare me for burial, did your heart not melt? When he looked at you with his unconditional love, did you not cry inside for the betrayal that would cause him so much pain? Did you look away from his innocent questioning eyes, pleading for your soul? As he said, have I wronged you? I only wanted to love you, but fear not. I will show you the extent of my love. I will open my arms even wider to embrace you in my love on the cross. 
Yes, even to you who have sinned against me, just ask for forgiveness. My mercy longs to forgive you. Judas sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Had he become so enamored with the silver, so involved with the monetary cost of spreading the word, that he lost sight of the cost Jesus spoke of, that of complete anuim, abandonment to the Father? Had he begun to worship the purse he held, and the honor and the power connected with the holding of the purse strings? Have not Jesus' trusted friends been selling out Jesus to his enemy for honor and power for the last 2,000 years? Lucifer could not kill Jesus on the cross. No grave could contain him. Lucifer and his pawns could not erase him from the face of the earth, whether by lies or deception. Oh, they tried to destroy every semblance of a shrine to our Lord and his life on earth. And yet, we still remember him. They made bloody examples of those who dared not deny him, and still we dare to love and follow him. The world has forgotten his enemies. It will never forget him. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen said Judas began his plot to betray Jesus when Jesus gave us his Eucharistic doctrine at Capernaum, calling himself the bread of life. I myself am the living bread come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he shall live forever. The bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Jesus said to them, let me solemnly assure you, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Then, at the Last Supper, when Jesus directed his apostles how they would bring him to the faithful until he returned, Judas completed his betrayal. The devil had already induced Judas, son of Simon, to hand Jesus over. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen said Judas could not bear belief in the Eucharist. Was his problem the same that we will see throughout our church's 2,000-year history? Was Jesus not the God he had hoped for? Jesus was a God of peace, a God of turn the other cheek, love your enemies, God. Was this the God he had been waiting for, fighting for? Was this the God who would save the Jewish people? No. He wanted a God who would fight and free the Jews from captivity, physical captivity, a conquering hero kind of God. Jesus was talking about eternal salvation tomorrow and forever. Judas wanted freedom now, glory now. He knew Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He ate at Jesus' table. Jesus taught him. Jesus chose him. How could he betray him? Are we any better being silent when we know false gods are being preached? Are we not betraying Jesus when we hear a double, when we are a double talked into believing our Lord's death and resurrection is a story more than reality? Do we stand by and do nothing as they did while our Lord was being nailed to the cross? When the enemy pride tempts us to choose the humanistic approach, replacing the one true God for a power within and we buy it, are we any better than the Jews who rejected Jesus and chose Barabbas instead? We know Jesus in his word, in his body and blood, soul and divinity in the most holy Eucharist. He sent his Holy Spirit down upon us. We stand on holy ground in a church made holy by the blood of the martyrs who died rather than de deny Christ in his church. We stand on a heritage bought by the faithfulness of 2,000 years of Catholics professing and living the Nicene Creed. 
We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come Amen. With the disciples at Emmaus, who said, Did our hearts not burn? Our hearts burn as we repeat these words of faith that echoed from the hill of Calvary to the catacombs of Rome to the blood-stained streets and jails of Christian martyrs. Is your vision blurred by tears instead of clouded by false promises and teachings? Mm -hmm. The attacks on Jesus began while he was still on earth. They have continued down through the centuries. Would they have stopped immediately if we had stood up for our Lord? If we had refused to participate in the bashing of our Lord and His Church? Would the attacks on our church be going on today if we would have stood up anywhere along the line? If we would now stand up and say, This is my God you're torturing, killing, spitting at? We have had enough. We will not stand by and see you hurt our Lord anymore. Stop. We say no. No more attacks on His Eucharist. No more attacks on his word. No more attacks on his mother. No more attacks on his church. Lord, we will no longer stand idly by like the spectators who watched you die on the cross. We will not run from the mission you have given us, Lord, like our first Pope Peter. We, like Peter before us, ask your forgiveness, Lord. We, like St. Francis before us, are ready to walk through burning coals for you. We are giving notice to the world. We are the church. We are the mystical body of Christ. We will not allow anyone to talk against our Lord and his church. We give notice to those of you who have betrayed the trust that our Lord has passed on to you. You who have betrayed his church, well, no more. He will shepherd us through his vicar and the loyal bishops who are in union with him. Mother Mary is rallying troops behind Pope John Paul II. With him at the head of our army, we will defend our church. We are ready to live for our church. We are ready to die for our church. When we began writing our book, This is My Body, This is My Blood, Miracles of the Eucharist, we didn't know we were writing a defense of the real presence of Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. We were just trying to share the gifts we discovered on our travels to the shrines in Europe, the treasure we have in our church. 
No sooner was our first book published than we became aware of God's reason for pushing us to write about his miracles of the Eucharist. We started to hear from the faithful of the abuses against the Eucharist within and without the church. Then, then we began to know the sorrowful heart of our Lord Jesus. We could see what he saw, his children, those he had died for, lambs being led to slaughter. For if our Lord is not truly present in the Holy Eucharist, then we are totally dependent on the Lord we find in our brothers and sisters. And what happens when we fail to find this Jesus that we seek and need? Do we look elsewhere? Oh, that's the best of the bad news, that we seek our Lord in another church. But is that really what Satan is after? We no longer think so. We believe he wants us to feel hopeless and helpless. He wants us to believe that we are not children of the Father, that the Bible is just filled with stories for a particular time to govern people's behavior, that Jesus was never born, that he never died, that there is no God, that we are gods. Where are these attacks coming from? The most unlikely places. That's what's so devious about Satan and his plan to destroy the church. We grew up believing if our priest said it, it is so. You could bank on his word, on his homilies, that they were in communion with the church, that they were based on the magisterium. Now we're hearing things like, what is a magisterium? Referring to our Pope's catechism of the Catholic Church, dissidents are saying, he sounds like he's been asleep for the last 20 years. I thought we were supposed to respect and obey the words of the Pope as our sweet Christ on earth. To give you an example of the deviousness of Satan, we believe he is using very unsuspecting priests and sisters to do his dirty work. And the poor lambs that they are teaching are mesmerized by sweet smiles and sweet words. Nine good words and they are on the way to heresy with the tenth. I was giving a talk at a gathering of women dedicated to Mother Mary, the Magnificat. The priest said at that time of the visitation, Mary's parents quickly spirited her out of town so she wouldn't be so stoned. Again inferring she went in fear for her, her life, he continued, you bet she went in haste. I did not bother to contradict the priest at that moment because I knew our mother would be defended when I got up to speak. Mary would have her day in court. I said, Mother Mary knew and recognized the angel. She had been waiting for her Messiah to be born of a virgin. The scriptures had told her so. In her humility, she was amazed that it was she who had been chosen. In Luke 1:48, we read, he looked upon his servant in her lowliness. But because she had spent her whole life in prayer, when the angel Gabriel brought her the good news, she was open to receive it and to act upon it. She did not focus on herself. She did not boast, I am the virgin who was chosen to bear the Son of God. Instead, believing the miracle that her aged cousin was with child, she went in haste to help her. Our lady was not showing. She was not far enough for long to show. My problem with this and other supposed humanization of Our Lady is that we reduce her to our level of sinfulness. She, who was not only spotless as the Mother of God, would have to be, but who was immaculately conceived. The rationalization that is used about Mother Mary is so illogical. By placing this imperfection of sin upon Our Lady, 
We're proposing an, an impossible scientific fact. We're alleging that you can get perfect fruit from a diseased tree. The most humble farmer will tell you this is impossible. One day when we went into a Blessed Sacrament Chapel to pray, we discovered sheets of paper containing innocent prayers to God with the heading mantras. Surely it wasn't the prayers that disturbed us, it was the word mantras. The children in this CCD class were young and impressionable, remember? Mm. They will remember the word mantras. After all, they learned it in church. It must be a church teaching. And so when someday someone tells them that they can buy a mantra, which can be very expensive, or teaches them a mantra, they will remember that what they read in a Catholic religious education book, quote, one kind of centering prayer that you might want to use is called a mantra. It goes on to say that, quote, you have probably noticed that mantras are short prayers that start by addressing God. Have we not forgotten what the word mantra has historically stood for and is associated with till today? Definition of mantra in the dictionary is Hinduism, a hymn or portion of text, especially from the, the Veda, chanted or intoned as an incantation or prayer. Looking up the word Veda in the dictionary, we find Veda, any of the four ancient sacred books of Hinduism, consisting of psalms, chants, sacred formulas, etc. Our eyes traveled down a couple of words in that dictionary and we found Vedanta, a system of Hindu monistic or pantheistic philosophy based on the Veda. Pantheism teaches that God is not a personality, that all laws, forces, or manifestations of the self-existing universe are God. A radical heresy, man, pantheism claims that man is on a level with God equal to him. That God is not a being, but is manifested in all the forces of the universe. It all began as a belief in 1705 when the term pantheism was originally coined by J. Toland in England. Originally, only the intelligentsia understood and accepted the heresy. But by the French Revolution, it had sifted down to the common man. They were led to believe and accept that because of the great strides being made by man as a result of the Industrial Revolution, they didn't need God anymore. Pantheism is a direct contradiction of the centuries-old belief of Catholics and Christians regarding the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Our belief that only Jesus and Mary were born without sin clashed with the new heresy of man being equal with God, which had caused confusion, it caused confusion and division. There was need to make the truth clear to the faithful. Mary brought the point across in 1830 in the Chapel of the Miraculous Medal in Paris, when she appeared to a little postulant, St. Catherine Labouret, and declared she was the Immaculate Conception. Pope Pius IX officially proclaimed that which we, has, we have always believed, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception on December 8, 1854. In case there was any doubt left as to the invalidity of pantheism, Mary appeared again in 1858, only now to a poor, simple peasant girl named Bernadette Subaru. 
in a remote village of Lourdes, high in the Pyrenees Mountains, and stated once again, I am the Immaculate Conception. In 1846, our country was consecrated to Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception, and she was declared patroness of the United States. Stone upon stone have risen from the cornerstone that was laid in 1913, and now a national shrine of the Immaculate Conception looms high in Washington, D.C., in the capital of our country, the same country that allowed an atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare to practically wipe out the name of God in our nation. But she, like so many bedfellows of Satan, cannot wipe out he who is, he who was, and he who always will be. This monument to God's mother rises high among the national monuments of a country that promised religious freedom and somewhere along the way got lost. To shout to all people for all time that we really are a country founded on the God. Mother Mary has been appearing at different times in different crises, bringing the same message to our ch children. We have a personal God who loves us. Why is she appearing in countries all over the world today? Is it because the threat of pantheism is here once again? Pantheism negates the essential difference between God and his creation. Rather, it promotes. And we hear this so very often in our highly intellectual society. The cosmic God, who is found only in and revealed solely through created objects and things. And yet, St. Paul tells us in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one deceive you through any empty, seductive philosophy that follows mere human traditions, a philosophy based on cosmic powers rather than on Christ. Man has been trying to lower God to his sinful, lowly station from the beginning of time. The danger of CCD books sanctioned by an imprimatur which advocate terminology that smacks of pantheism under the guise of sound Catholic teaching is that it ultimately leads to man and away from God. A priest was giving us a workshop on the Eucharist. He handed everyone a questionnaire. It asked the four element, necessary elements required to celebrate the Eucharist. We were having difficulty coming up with the fourth element. He informed us the correct answer was number one, the people, number two, the priest, number three, the word, and then last, the Eucharistic elements. He went on to stress that not any one element was more important than the other. Is this not a heresy? Now, if I recall correctly, what is essential for the Mass to be valid is the Word, the Eucharist, and the priest who summons the Holy Spirit down upon the bread and wine. And through his consecrated hands, they are transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. In no way are we belittling the importance of the faithful participating in the Mass. We're simply stating that it is our belief that a Mass celebrated by a priest on a side altar in St. Peter's Basilica without anyone else present, although not preferable, is still valid and holy. Let us quote from the documents of Vatican Council II. Quote, Christ is always present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, the same now offering through the ministry of priests, who formerly offered himself on the cross, thou Lord Jesus, but especially under the Eucharistic species. By his power he is present in the sacraments, 
so that when a man baptizes, it is really Christ himself who baptizes. He is present in his word, since it is himself who speaks when the Holy Scriptures are read in church. He is present lastly when the church prays and sings, for he promised when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. This priest kept referring to the host as the Eucharistic wine and bread. Now, I'm not in any way disputing that our Lord comes to us under the appearance of bread and wine, but I contend, as councils of the church have proclaimed again and again, that the consecrated host is no longer bread, that real change has come about, and that the wine is no longer wine but real blood, the blood that Christ shed on the cross. This doctrine is called transubstantiation. If we call the consecrated host bread, then has change come about? If change has not come about, then as with some of our separated brothers and sisters in Christ who contend they have the Eucharist believe, but believe it's a symbol, it's all right for us to throw away the hosts that are left over. Because after all, it's only bread. Then why tabernacles? Is he present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the tabernacle? Why exposition of the blessed sacrament? Why do the faithful come at all hours of the day and night to keep the blessed sacrament company? Are we worshiping a piece of bread? Are we worshiping, as some of our non-Catholic brethren believe, an idol as we kneel before a monstrance? Or are we worshiping our Lord in the Holy Eucharist who is present before us in the monstrance? The song that comes to mind is, we are standing on holy ground. The Lord is present and where he is, is holy. The altar is holy and dear priest, your consecrated hands are holy and you are called to be holy. We know it is not always acceptable to be holy, but you are chosen to be a sign of Jesus in this world, and Jesus was and is holy. family for watching. This is just one of over 200 books and videos available here at Journeys of Faith. Now these are perfect tools for evangelization and give them as gifts for birthdays, confirmations, First Holy Communion. Anytime you think of a gift, give one of these tools of evangelization. Write us at the address on our screen or call us in the United States at 1-800-633-248. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply, with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.